We have a special guest today. Um, we have with us Dr. Jonathan Pennington. And uh, you probably are familiar with Jonathan Pennington. Um, if you've been around Lincoln for a while, he's been with us before. He is the professor of New Testament interpretation at Southern Seminary. And he's also the teaching pastor, one of the teaching pastors at Sojourn Church in Louisville, Kentucky. But probably most importantly to us, he's our friend. Uh, he's a friend of our church and he's a friend of our ministry. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of the folks in uh, our seminaries, folks in kind of the higher up places, I guess. Uh, he may disagree with that. Anyway, you know, but what I think of is that they want to be friends with us in Northwest Oklahoma. I don't know why. They just don't come out here very much. And uh, But Dr. Pennington has been uh, for years, and he's done uh, training with our staff uh, over and over again. Uh, he has trained the pastors of, of Northwest Baptist Association, Northwest Oklahoma, uh, again and again, both in person and over Zoom. And so he's just been a great friend of our church and a great friend of our ministry. And he's coming today, and he's going to be preaching out of Ecclesiastes, which is really exciting for me, because you don't hear a lot of sermons out of Ecclesiastes, all right? Normally, you just get depressed when you read Ecclesiastes, but I got a feeling that today uh, we're going to be energized. And so I'm just really looking forward. I got to spend some time with Dr. Pennington yesterday, just in discussion and talking about the Beatitudes. He's got several books out. Uh, if you're a book reader, and uh, you ought to be a book reader, uh, you want to check out some of his books. The one I have on my desk right now is Jesus the Philosopher, and it's outstanding. And so we are honored and just uh, just tickled to death to have Dr. Jonathan Pennington with us. So Dr. Pennington, come up and bring the word to us today. Thank you. Hey, it is so great to be here. Over the last 15 years, I've been able to come out several times. It's been a few years since, so some of you I haven't met before. Uh, but I actually talk about you guys all the time. I really do. I always talk about this is one of my very favorite places to go and be with such beautiful salt-of-the-earth people. So uh, thanks for welcoming me here again. Uh, we will be in Ecclesiastes 2 uh, at my church. We just finished preaching 12 weeks in Ecclesiastes, so I was a little afraid everybody was going to be depressed as well <laughs> after 12 weeks, but God really showed up at our church uh, during that series, and I thought... Uh, when I was thinking about coming and speaking to you, I thought I'll go back to one of the, the earlier sermons from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So let me, let me just read for you the first uh, 11 verses of Ecclesiastes 2. The teacher says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the light of the sons of men. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let me pray uh, as we begin today. 
Our good Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for that last song and the truths of which we sung that um, you're trustworthy and that we can find peace in our souls in the midst of trials and difficulties. I, I'm aware this morning there are probably burdens here, financial worries and marital strife and parenting anxieties and health concerns, all the other things that is our life under the sun. I would ask that you would fill us with your spirit in this moment. Do for, do for us what we can't do for ourselves, which is bring healing to our deepest place in our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think you have a lot of Amish people in this area. I could be wrong. But in, in eastern parts of the United States, in every year in some of the larger Amish communities, there's a rite of passage that Amish adolescents go through, and it's called the Rumspringer, and that's just Pennsylvania Dutch pronunciation of a German word that means to hop around. And as you may know, the Amish people who are a subset of the Anabaptist tradition going way back, they live very simple and organized communal lives, a lot like a lot of you around here. They, they emphasize hard work, they emphasize humility, What's probably most known about them is they have no electronics, no motors, no motorized vehicles. They have very simple clothing and particular hairstyles, and they have very dedicated religious practices and, and again, a really strong sense of communal and personal responsibility. So what happens is when an Amish boy or girl turns 16, which in their minds is adulthood, they enter this Rumspringer. And this is the opportunity for all of those young adults to hop around and try a very different way of living than how they have been brought up without any fear of being punished for it or um, exiled from the community. Now, this Rumspringa, it may last a few months. It may even last a few years until the young person decides what they're going to do with their lives. And during this time, the adolescents in their room springa, they're free to try on practices of the world all around them. So a lot of them all of a sudden start wearing jeans and t-shirts instead of simple smocks. They start driving vehicles. They start drinking and doing a lot of other recreational drugs. They stop attending the prayer meetings. There's often a lot of heavy partying, heavy video game playing, lots of smoking. I've seen a documentary on there about how much of that there was. And here's the question. Why do the Amish, who are very conservative, very responsible people, why do they allow this Rumspringer? Well, it's because the Amish people believe that following Christ is very serious and is a lifelong commitment to a community that has to be taken seriously. So before age 16, they would say all the children they're raising are not yet adults, but once they are 16, which again is when they enter adulthood, they need to make their own choice is their, is their way of thinking about it. Will they be baptized at that point and enter into the church and enter into the community, or will they not? If they choose to enter into the community, then they need to settle down, get married, work hard, and be committed to the community for the rest of their lives. So it's, for them, it's like a crucial turning point. If they choose not to enter the church and the community, they're free then to go on with their lives elsewhere. And the idea underneath the Rumspringa is that once a young person experiences all these worldly pleasures for themselves, 
then they'll be able to, and only then will they be able to compare the way they were brought up with this other lifestyle and see how they compare and which one weighs up. Do the, do the pleasures that the community provides, how do those compare these pleasures of committed marriage and hard work and a self-controlled life versus what the world offers? Now, here's the remarkable thing about this practice that's been going on for centuries, is that in the various Amish and Mennonite communities who practice the Rumspringa, and it is crazy, the stuff they do during it, about 90 to 95% of the youth return to the church and the community and live in their lives, live in the community the rest of their lives. It's remarkable. 90 to 95% of the people return. Now, I am not here to suggest you start doing this, especially you teenagers here, because I actually have some pretty serious reservations about the wisdom of this because of the power of habits that are formed in those years, you know, in that age. Like that can, I think, can be really destructive and, and it's very easy to, to never recover from that. And there are lots of stories of that as well. But the reason I bring this up this morning is because I think the Rumspringa helps us ask a very important question. And that's this. If you could do whatever you wanted would you be satisfied? If you could have everything available to you and do whatever you wanted, would you be satisfied? If you had unlimited power, if you had unlimited pleasure, opportunity, strength, and you did whatever you wanted, what would the result be? Would it be the happiness and peace that we all long for? Would it be the, the flourishing life or would it not? Well, this is a good question to ask, I think, especially as we are, you know, kind of finding a new normal after COVID and after all the craziness of the last 18 months. It's a good question to ask ourselves, how do we really find the contentment, the life, the soul peace, the shalom, as the Bible would call it? How do we really find that? And it's really a universal human question. And it's one that actually God is not afraid of, and God gives us an answer to in Holy Scripture. In fact, there's a lot of places we could go to, but what I want us to look at today is this very unexpected place, and it is the book of Ecclesiastes. And again, I, as Jason said, I, this book isn't much on our radar. It's kind of scary. If you've ever read Ecclesiastes, it's very weird. There are verses in Ecclesiastes that you say, hey, that's in the Bible? I can't believe that. It's a very weird kind of book. But I want to look at it. I want to land for a few minutes this morning with you in Ecclesiastes 2 to ask, what does God say about finding true contentment, finding true life that you and I all long for. Now, to understand this, I need to just take one minute and explain to you what in the world is going on in this weird book of Ecclesiastes. It's an ancient book of wisdom, and I hope you found it, and I hope you can turn there in your Bible. It's somewhere out in the middle of your Bible. It's an ancient book of wisdom written by a, a Jewish king, a wise Jewish king, and it's really a word from God for you and me inviting us to learn wisdom learning us to how to live, teaching us how to live wisely in the world. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes, he calls this life, life under the sun. And that, that's a refrain you'll hear all throughout Ecclesiastes, and it's referring to just our earthly life. And the biggest word you'll see over and over, it's in the, if you look at Ecclesiastes 1, it's right from the beginning in verse 2. It occurs scores of times throughout the whole book. Your translation may say vanity. Some of your other translations say meaningless. 
Uh, those are attempts at getting at this, but the, the Hebrew word is hevel or hevel, which really just means smoke or vapor. And the whole idea of Ecclesiastes is that everything in life feels like smoke. That is, it feels like it's uncontrollable, it feels like it's unpredictable, and it feels like it's fleeting. That if you live long enough, everything eventually feels like you can't really, it's like trying to control smoke. It's controlling vapor. It's like, so it's not so much meaningless, like life doesn't matter, but the, the sense of meaningless or futility we get from the fact that life is never what we think it's gonna be. It's never fully satisfying. We can never control it. And even the good things are fleeting. We lose them as soon as we get them. And this whole book of Ecclesiastes is really giving an honest and searching evaluation about whether life is truly worth living in light of that feeling that we all have, that we can never, all good things come to an end and everything gets broken and every good thing ends up having cracks in it and losing. And the question to ask is, how do we find life in the midst of that life under the sun? What we're about to see in chapter two of Ecclesiastes is that the, the teacher, he engages in an experiment, his own rumspringer. And he's asking himself the question, is there anything in life that will truly satisfy me? Hard work or whatever it is, is there anything I can do that will actually make life feel and be more than just this vapor that is uncontrollable? And what's amazing is that this king of Jerusalem can actually do it. Unlike you and me, this guy is an ancient king, so he has all the power, he has all the authority, has all the money, everything he wants, he can take it. Most of us here have quite a few limits on family commitments and money and space and physical health. So what's great about Ecclesiastes 2 this morning is that you and I get to kind of live vicariously, we could get, kind of see what would happen if we could be like this king. If we could do whatever we wanted, would it satisfy? Now, I grew up in central Illinois, and I have a wonderful aunt and uncle who are like very precious to me, like second parents. And one of the things I loved about going to their house all the time is that they had this large games closet. And whenever I would go there, they had a bunch of games that we didn't have. Like, especially, I remember they had that hockey, you know, the sliding things. Those were great. Anybody remember how great those were? Those sliding, sliding hockey game. They had all these games. And when I think about Ecclesiastes 2, I think of it like my aunt and uncle's game closet in the sense that he's saying, I could go there and play any of the games I wanted. And he's saying, I'm going to go out into the world and try every kind of game, every kind of thing out there, and will it satisfy me? He says in 2.1 again, come now, he says to himself, I will test you with pleasure to find what is good. And if you have a Bible, you can see we could call these next 11 verses then that I read a moment ago, we call this the great experiment tried. Can I find satisfaction? And if you'll just let your eyes rest on chapter two, verses one to 11, just see what he says here. First, in verse two, he says, he tries laughter, and jokes, and puns, and comedy. He tries humor. It's like the king invites Jim Gaffigan to his throne room for a private show, right, or something, right? Somebody recently asked me um, what the most life-giving thing in my life is, and I would say being with interesting, funny people. I've got some really good friends who just make me laugh all the time, and that is a great life pleasure. 
So the teacher tries this out. He tries all kinds of humor and the pleasure of laughter, and he finds and asks, is that going to satisfy? Then look at verse 3. He tries alcohol. He tells us in verse 3 that he thoughtfully and carefully used wine to experiment what he could be found. And in this, he's following Psalm 104 that reminds us, Psalm 104 says to God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and the beard to strengthen the man's heart. So he, he tries in a controlled way to use alcohol to say, is this going to make me happy? Then if you look at verses four to seven, he tries, the teacher tries all the beautiful things that he built. He says he built houses and vineyards and gardens and parks, all the artistic creations. He's, he's doing what God called Adam and Eve to do, to bring order out of chaos, to add beauty to the world. So he builds beautiful things and he says, is this gonna satisfy? Then look at the latter part of verse seven and into verse eight. He tries money and possessions. That second part of verse 7 and into 8, he explores the power of money and says, is this going to satisfy? We often joke in my household, money can't buy you happiness, but I'm willing to give it a shot, right? I think that's what the teacher's saying here. He's got all the money in the world, and he tries. Look at verse 8, music. Truly, one of the greatest creations of God, this mysterious, powerful transforming gift of, of music. And I like music of all sorts. I listen to Mendelssohn, you know, classical music, Pink Floyd. I wrote, write most of my sermons to Pink Floyd. I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan, huge Taylor Swift fan. I love all kinds of music. And music does enable us to experience the whole range of emotions. That Music helps us articulate uh, the complexity of the human life. It's a wonderful thing. So the teacher has the best musicians available to him. He has a huge choir of people, and he explores, what is this going to make me happy? Music. Look at verse 8, sex. It's no profound statement that one of the most powerful human experiences is this God-given gift of sexuality. It drives all men and women to do a lot of things, good things, like getting married and caring for other people and settling down, and a lot of stupid things, too, like committing adultery and hurting others and making a wreck of our lives. So the teacher, he's a king. He can do whatever he wants in this area with all immunity. He can do what most of us can or cannot or should never do. He can try to explore this whole realm of the human experience, and he asks, is that going to satisfy? Verse 9, if you look there, affirmation and honor. He tells us that he experienced with affirmation, being affirmed as being great and honored. And he says, is that going to satisfy? Verse 10, related to that, work. He talks about the satisfaction that comes from working hard. Many of you know that. There's, that is a beautiful satisfaction. Uh, I'm a GSD kind of person, get stuff done. I love checklists. I love to get things done. Often, I not only start every day with a checklist, but if I do something that wasn't on the checklist, I go back and add it to the checklist after I've done it just so I can get the satisfaction of checking it off. I know there's some of you that are like that as well, right? I love to get stuff done. This is what he does. He says, is this going to satisfy being a hard worker? I love how the old pastor Eugene Peterson translates verses 9 and 10. He says, Oh, how I prospered. I left all my predecessors in Jerusalem far behind. I left them behind in the dust. He accomplished so much. What's more, I kept a clear head through it all. Everything I wanted, I took. I never said no to myself. I gave in to every impulse, held back nothing. I sucked the marrow of pleasure out of every task. My reward to myself for a hard day's work. 
So he tries all these things. And after all this great experiment, this ancient Jewish room spring, uh, what does our pleasure-seeking teacher find? What he finds is, what you and I would find if we tried this, that all of these shining pleasures prove to be temporary, plastic, and cheap, no matter how good they looked initially. All bodily pleasures, sooner or later, lose their luster. They become a chasing after the wind. Look at verse 11. He says, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Or again, how Eugene Peterson translates it. Then I took a good look at everything I'd done, looked at all the sweat and hard work, but when I looked, I saw nothing but smoke. Smoke and spitting into the wind, there was nothing to any of it, nothing. That's really important to notice something here. This is not saying that all those things necessarily were immoral or bad things. In other words, that list, most of those things in there, and in their proper context, every one of those things is actually good. So he's not saying, I did all these bad things in the world and wasn't satisfied. He's saying, I did all these good things that God has made, laughter, sex, hard work, music, and yet in everything under the sun, our human experience could be summed up with what we call the law of diminishing returns. Do you know this? That whatever pleasure something gave the first time, the second time it's a little less, the third time it's a little less, and this is the law of diminishing pleasures when it comes to the human experience that all pleasure returns on a downward curve. That sooner or later, we all experience what we call in our family the December 26th syndrome, right? All the anticipation, we have six kids, and we've, you know, they're mostly adults now, but all the years of Christmas was a big deal. In fact, in our family, we not only celebrate Christmas, we celebrate birthdays as a big deal too. We not only have their birthday, we have birthday Eve even. Like we would, do these, we would do these things upright, right? But no matter what, all the anticipation, all the hope of Christmas or your birthday or whatever it is, then it's over. And it's the next day, and the disappointment is real. And especially with Christmas, the long, dark winter sets in. And so the preacher sets out, then you see, on a quest for happiness by giving himself to everything he could find. He held happiness in his hand in every way he could, and then he watched it slip through his fingers. Look at what he says again. Humor. The pleasure of humor is fleeting. It doesn't last. Sadness and boredom always come. In fact, many of us use humor to actually avoid really paying attention to what's going on in our lives. A lot of humor for us, not all of it, but a lot of humor for us is just a, a way to not really pay attention to what's going on in our lives. In fact, it's often said that professional comedians are the loneliest people in the world. Alcohol, a good gift from God according to the Bible, but absolute foolishness if we use it as an escape. All the regular biblical warnings against drunkenness and the danger of becoming addicted to alcohol are, and its destructive effects. Crafting and building. I love building beautiful things, 
but everything we build eventually will crumble. Everything crumbles, gets cracks, gets robbed and vandalizes, vandalized and loses its luster. Money and possessions, we all know, I hope you know, that no matter how much money you have, it will never be enough. And everything, it's, it's no coincidence that the often the most unhappy, the most ungenerous, the most unsatisfied, and the, most, the people with the most broken relationships are the people with the most money. Money does not satisfy. Music, every song gets old eventually, a powerful gift that can eventually become tired and, and boring as well. And it, of course, music also isn't able to accommodate all of the pain in our lives. Sexuality, again, the law of diminishing returns is very clear here. Contrary to, the, to what the, the flesh wants to tell us in the moment, this will not really satisfy our deepest needs. Affirmation and honor, Fame and honor and affirmation feel good, but they're never enough. I remember as a, as a young student, just sort of longing for maybe, you know, I felt like God was calling me to be a professor and to go get a PhD. And I remember the first time I saw my name in print, you know, and the first time I had a book come out and whatever it is, and all the accolades you might get for whatever it is in your job, whatever's comparable, does it really satisfy no matter, no matter how high you set your goal on something and you reach it after a while, nothing really satisfies. Work. Again, like affirmation and crafting and building, everything we build and all that we work for eventually breaks and break down, breaks down. Work never really ends. There's always someone more successful than you. And eventually, some of you know this more than others, your body and your mind will wear out and get crunchy and slow and dried up. No matter what a great worker you were, it's all smoke. It's all chasing after the wind. So then look at verses 12 to 16 of chapter two and see what the teacher does. He says, okay, I'm gonna try a different tack. All these pleasures do not satisfy, so he's going to try living wisely. Look at verses 12 to 16. Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what he's already done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. Sorry if your translation's a little different here. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless or, or smoke. For the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. <laughs> Ouch. Happy Sunday morning. Whether you are a fool and do whatever you want and think that's going to give you pleasure, or whether you are a totally wise, godly person, you are going to die. And probably within two generations, people won't even remember your name. Maybe three. So the teacher tries out this life of wisdom. And again, there are tons of gurus out in the world telling you, here's how to live well. 
He tries out living wisely. Before he tried living foolishly, now he tries living wisely, and he finds that the end is exactly the same. It's hevel, it's wind chasing, it's smoke, it's vapor. He recognizes that it's actually better to live wisely than foolishly, that's what he says there, but at the end, everyone dies. This is why Jason hasn't preached from Ecclesiastes. <laughs> so how does the teacher respond? How do we respond? Because honestly, that is just being honest. We spend a lot of our lives trying to avoid that truth, but that is the reality. So how do you respond? In fact, the result is despair. The result is despair. Look at verse 17 and following. Again, sorry if I'm reading a different translation here, but it's probably pretty similar to what you've got in front of you. Verse 17, he says, so after he thinks about all this, he says, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of its smoke, it's meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I have to leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Any ranchers here worried about the next generation? Yeah, right? Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So, the teacher says, my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all their toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. <laughs> what happens when you and I actually get what we work for? Not only does it rarely satisfy we realize in our honest moments that even if we did everything right and God blessed us and we were totally successful, that beauty fades, weeds grow, Teslas get scratches and dents and rust and walls settle and crack. And then all that you've created for and built and worked for with all wisdom, it may last for a little while, but then you're gonna die and your children or your grandchildren are going to sell your collection of vintage battle, baseball cards or silver, silver coins for 75 cents at a garage sale. <laughs> Lament, which is what this is ex expressing here, it's actually wise. There's an appropriate time and place and this is one good place to actually feel the grief of our lives. Lament is what we call that when we think about our own death. And so, we have the great experiment he tries. And it results, instead of satisfying him, in a more profound sense of the futility of life. And the result is despair. So what do we do? What do you do when you're standing there pumping gas or maybe up early in the morning quiet or late at night and you honestly feel the kind of futility and despair of, of the sense of meaningless of life? What do you do? Well, everybody in the world feels that at some point and people try lots of different things. Some people, it's what we call hedonism, they just double down in seeking more pleasure. 
So I'm dissatisfied, so I'm just going to seek more pleasure. And what happens when you do that? It's ultimately more despair and self-destruction because pleasures become addictions and addictions become destroyers. Some people become cynics. Maybe some of you here are feeling this way this morning. Just accept the meaningless of life. Stop fretting about everything. Just lie on a, on a bench and look at the sunset and you just kind of snicker at fools. So because that sense of, of meaninglessness is so strong and you can't handle it, you just think, I'm just gonna show up in life as a cynic. Yeah, everything is meaningless and you fools who think Christianity and whatever else, you're all just dumb. For some people, the result is what we call nihilism, that you actually become a purveyor, a seller of despair. You give yourself over to the meaninglessness of life and the pain and, and just kind of collapse under it. I think a little closer to the bone for probably most of us here this morning is what we might call or what I call a, a Christianized escapism. An escapism that many Christians kind of give themselves over to. They say, because we know God is good and that we're supposed to believe that and we can't handle the honest sense of despair that it feels because we know that this feeling I have despair, this doesn't work with what I know about God. So some people do this kind of escapism where you just put on a happy face. Everything's great. Glory of God. Good morning. Romans 8, 28, everything's fine. And it's really not being honest about the brokenness of the world in ourselves and in others and just kind of trying to deny it in ourselves and escape it. Or we turn against all the pleasures of the world, which is not what the teacher here does. We say, yes, all that stuff is meaningless, so any pleasure is bad. Avoid all pleasure. Just put your head down. It's all going to burn. This whole world is horrible. All these things are bad. Everything's bad. The government's bad. Everything's bad. I'm just going to work really hard and get away until I get away from these horrible people. Is that what the Bible teaches? Both of those are versions of just trying to escape the sense of despair that we all feel. But none of those is where our teacher ends up. None of this is the wisdom of God. And here we finally come to the point. And look at chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. So what does he say? A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? <laughs> now, even that, you might say, that's kind of a weird verse because that kind of sounds like hedonism, just eat and drink and do whatever, but that's not what he's saying. This is not what the teacher's saying. He's saying something far more profound, far more God-centered and satisfying, and the solution is this. The solution is a god centered contentment. I love what one commentator on Ecclesiastes observes that starting back to chapter 114 through 223, God is completely absent. There's no mention of God. Now in 224 to 26, God is mentioned three times in quick succession. And the emphasis is on what God gives. And here's the point. God actually gives us enjoyment in his gifts while giving us perspective on ourselves. Let me say that again. God gives us enjoyment in his gifts by giving us perspective on ourselves. That is, you and I are not meant to rule the world. 
We are not meant to master our own destiny. We are not meant to find ultimate gain or satisfaction in anything in the world. So in other words, the point of all this feeling of despair, that is a gift to us to help us recognize what it means to be a creature under the sun and thereby turn our hearts and find contentment in God. You see, the solution to all the despair we feel is not to double down on pleasure or become a cynic or a skeptic or try to escape it all, but to recognize all that futility that you and I feel is a gift to help us remember God in heaven as we live our lives under the sun. And instead of trying to use all the good pleasures and gifts that God has given to humanity to find meaning, instead of trying to use all the things that are available in the world to find meaning and to find life, we're supposed to receive them as a gift. They're not bad things but we receive them as a gift that we hold on to loosely, a gift from the hand of God so that we might find life in God. I love how the pastor, Zach Eswine, describes it. He says, the preacher here maintains that God exists and is knowable. Therefore, purpose can be recovered, not beneath the sun, but in the one who created the sun. The point of all the dissatisfaction, friends, is that it's meant to point our hearts and our lives and our minds to the one who created the sun. Life under the sun is futility for the purpose of us finding the one who created it. Pastor Eswine brilliantly describes looking for satisfaction in the world apart from God as like looking for medicine in a shoe store or playing soccer with a watermelon, right? Shoe stores are good, but if you go there, looking for medicine, you're not going to find it. So too, when you and I go to the world to find true satisfaction, we're not going to find it. Watermelons are good. Soccer is good. But when you try to play soccer with a watermelon, it is just a mess, right? And so too, when we are trying to find the ultimate contentment that we can only find in relationship with God in the things of the world, we will always be frustrated. And that is a gift from God. That is a gift to tell you, this is all good things I've created, but you will not find your life there. And that is an insight that goes way back in the church to one of the most important saints of old, St. Augustine. And he repeatedly emphasized that the root of all of our sin and struggle in the world is that we use what we're supposed to love and we love what we're supposed to use. And if you can get a hold of that, that will transform your life. That what we all do constantly is that we use the things we're supposed to love, like people and God, and we end up loving the things, that we're only, the things we're only supposed to use, like the pleasures of the world and work and sexuality and all these things. All the things God has given us for our good are to be used but not loved in the sense that pleasures, work, beautiful things, humor, money. Those are things that we can use and say, this is a gift from God, thank you. But we do not give our hearts to them. Where the things we're meant to love people and God, first and second greatest commandments, we often use those things and therefore we don't find satisfaction and cause harm as well. True contentment under the sun can be found in the midst of the fleetingness of life if we accept all that we have from God as a gift, not as something that's actually going to satisfy us. 
Because we are dependent creatures who are made for a relationship with God. Our bodies, our work, our pleasures, they're not bad things. They're not to be ignored, but we have to have a proper relationship with them. And the proper relationship with them is a one of using them as gifts, not loving them with all our hearts. So what about you today? Do you struggle to be content? Do you feel the fleetingness of life? Do you feel the frustration and the futility of life? To whatever degree that's true of us, that's a reflection of ways in our lives that we're probably trying to love the things that God has given us as a gift, and we're trying to use the things that we're supposed to be loving. You are, a ma- you are made for a relationship with God that can only be found through Jesus Christ, his son. That doesn't mean that once you become a Christian that all of life ceases to feel futile. It still does because it's life under the sun, but it's something we learn over time to find this true contentment, just like playing golf or learning to drive a stick shift or whatever it is. It's something you, you're gonna stumble with and struggle with, and that's the Christian life. This wise teacher of Jerusalem was struggling with it himself. That struggle is never gonna completely go away, but it is a gift to learn. It is a process to learn to find true contentment, even in the midst of the futility of the world, the brokenness of the world, through a relationship with God. It's a practice that you and I can get better at. I mean, my life, like yours, is full of a lot of joys, a lot of pleasures, a lot of gifts, a lot of blessings, and it's also full of a lot of disappointments frustrations and fear and uncertainties and unmet expectations. And in the midst of all of that, I struggle to find contentment just like you do. And the invitation this morning is that you and I need to learn from God's wisdom to actually lean in and to embrace the uncertainty, to embrace the dissatisfactions of life and recognize as a gift that teaches us to depend on God. And the number one thing I try to do very imperfectly to find contentment is that whenever I'm just aware of the futility or anxiety or whatever else I have going on that in the world's sense of vaporness, I remind myself I want to be present to this person, to this place, to this moment. To just say, I'm going to be here now and receive this moment as a gift. And that's what it means to be a creature in proper relationship to the creator. Now back, way back in 2002, there was a documentary on the Rumspringa. And it was called The Devil's Playground. And in it, it featured Farron Yoder, good Amish name, a young Amish man who was in in the midst of his Rumspringa. And Later on, Ira Glass, if you've ever heard of This American Life, it's a famous podcast, he did an interview with Farron Yoder. And what Farron Yoder did during his Rumspringa, he left his Amish community and he lived the life of sex, drugs, electricity, <laughs> cars, and for him, it ended up resulting in a $100 a day or more meth addiction, drug dealing, and jail time. And when you listen to the interview and watch the documentary, it is grievous because you can hear the the sadness the confusion the unsettledness in this young man's voice he's really a soul adrift 
And in it, he talks about that before he was 16, before he entered his room, Springer, he would see everyone else outside his Amish community, and he'd think how lucky it was for all of them to have all these pleasures and freedoms. And so again, he just went for it, and the results were disastrous. He recognized that the point of the room spraying, he recognized within his community, was to help young Amish men and women, again, see the world and see how unsatisfying it was. And he acknowledges, it's very heartbreaking, that being Amish doesn't guarantee you happiness, but he acknowledges that really almost everyone he knows and grew up with were incredibly happy and content with what they had, even though they didn't have much. And looking back, he can see the reason why almost every one of his friends went back and re-entered the Amish community. Because he says, you don't have all the modern things or whatever, but as far as peace, tranquility, and a calm life, it's beautiful. And then the interviewer, Ira Glass, asked him this penetrating question. He said, Farron, are you happy? Are you happy now? And the formerly Amish man, he's very vulnerable and with a crackling voice, he says, I think so, I'm, I don't know. I always have a, I don't know about happy. I'm just more relaxed now. What a sobering and instructive response. That he recognizes he's not happier. In fact, he's got a lot of grief. And he says he just kind of in the moment feels more relaxed. But friends, that is not enough. That is not enough to bring you satisfaction and a centered, a, a place of gravity in your life that will serve you for your whole life under the sun. And God is saying to you and me this morning through Ecclesiastes 2, there is more to life than just this great experiment of seeking pleasure. Life under the sun has been subjected to futility so that we might learn who God is. And true life is only found in embracing the life God has given us as a gift from him. This is a commitment to be found in not trying to escape the reality of Hevel, not saying all the things of the world are bad, but instead learning to find life under the sun in relationship to the true son, Jesus Christ. So what about you? Let me pray. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the gift of life and also even the frustrations of life. And I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and bring healing to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.